Leviticus chapter 5. We're going to be going through Leviticus and have been going through it for a little while, and we've now made it to chapter 5. We'll read about the first seven verses as usual, as in the past. I'll have some particular portions highlighted, so if you'd like to take some notes or mark that down in your Bible, it's of course very appropriate for you to do. So Leviticus chapter 5, starting in verse 1. If anyone sins because they do not speak up, When they hear a public charge to testify regarding something they have seen or learned about, they will be held responsible. If anyone becomes aware that they are guilty, if they unwittingly touch anything ceremonially unclean, whether the carcass of an unclean animal, wild or domestic, or of any unclean creature that moves along the ground, and they are unaware that they have become unclean, but then they come to realize their guilt... Or if they touch human uncleanness, anything that would make them unclean, even though they are unaware of it, but then they learn of it and realize their guilt. Or if anyone thoughtlessly takes an oath to do anything, whether good or evil, in any matter one might carelessly swear about, even though they are unaware of it, but then they learn of it and realize their guilt... When anyone becomes aware that they are guilty in any of these matters, they must confess in what way they have sinned. As a penalty for the sin they have committed, they must bring to the Lord a female lamb or goat from the flock as a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for them for their sin. Now, I hope for a period of time now, over the last couple weeks, we have all seen that these passages in Leviticus are not just about the ritual. They're about deep ethics, about behaviors. And this particular chapter opens up with the phrase, if anybody is called to witness and testify about something they have seen, but then refuses to speak up, then there's some sin that has been committed. This is what's known as the biblical ethic of protesting. Has anybody ever been a part of a protest? A couple years ago, Danielle and I went to, uh, there was this rally by Stephen Colbert and John Stewart, for those of you who follow them. This is about, you know, six years ago now, five and a half years ago. October 30th, 2010, they had a rally to restore sanity and or fear. And if you've watched any of these programs, you know that there's satirical play on the political scene and their comedians, and it's a whole lot of fun. It was a real event, and I surprised Danielle, got her tickets. We went on a plane, landed in Washington, and we had a fantastic time. I want to show you some of what happened at that event. Some of you know this because uh, you heard about from Danielle many years ago, but give you a little bit of a sense of what they were protesting, what, what the gathering, what this rally was about. Here, this is a sign that says, there are no misspellings on my sign, so I know I'm right. And you'll have to look closely at that to get what they're saying. Uh, there was discussion about where are the moderate Muslims, and there was this beautiful sign, where are the moderate Muslims? Right here. So I thought that was a really, really neat thing that they decided to show up for this particular rally. Uh, My political views cannot be summarized in a pithy sign. So they're carrying that around. This is one of my favorite signs. What do we want? Respectful discourse. When do we want it? Well, now would be agreeable to me, but I'm interested in your opinion. (laughs) Now, this gathering by uh, John Stewart and Stephen Colbert, which uh, was just a lot of fun, and they're about 
215,000 people that showed up. So this was a major event on the Washington Mall, was essentially, even though it was a lot of fun, was essentially a protest. It was a protest against the kinds of political rhetoric that we have in our culture, the kinds of political rhetoric that we see on TV, and to say that, listen, the kinds of conversations and the kinds of things that people are saying, it's a little bit out of control. And we are going to gather, we're going to rally together to restore sanity to our political discourse in our country. So, that's what we did. We showed up. But fundamentally and essentially, it's a protest. This beginning passage in Leviticus chapter 5 starts with this same ethic and says, if you do not protest, you are committing a sin. There is a sin. There is a transgression for not speaking up when you should be speaking up. When you see of something, when you are testifying to something, there is a biblical injunction for those of us who know information or have witnessed something to say something. And this falls right in line with the biblical ethic of protesting. Remember the story from Genesis chapter 18. God says this horrific evil city of Sodom, I'm going to absolutely destroy. But yet Abraham protests. He speaks up and he says, well, wait a second, God, what if, what if, what if? And he has an argument with God. Later on in the book of Exodus, Moses actually pleads for the people of Israel. They are engaging in all sorts of compromising activities while Moses is on top of the mountain. He comes down and God is very upset and angry and he's going to destroy them all. But then Moses argues and protests with God and says, but wait a second, Lord, if you destroy these people, what's going to come of your reputation? Moses is speaking up, protesting against a possible injustice, or in this particular case, against the reputation of God, that God's reputation would be soiled if he committed this egregious act. And then the prophets are there all to protest the actions, the behaviors, the transgressions, the falling away, the hypocrisy of the people of Israel. Have you ever considered the history of our faith, the ethic of our faith, as one of protest? Oftentimes when you think of Christianity, when you think of the biblical narrative, it's about what do you fundamentally believe. It's about what is convicted in your heart. It's about having a personal spiritual experience. Have you ever considered our faith as one of protest, of speaking up for justice and speaking out against injustice. When you see something, when you're a witness to something that you know is against God or against God's ethic, it is our job and our duty as followers of God, as lovers of Yahweh, as worshipers of God, to speak up. And this Leviticus passage begins with, if you see something and don't say anything, that, in and of itself, is a sin that we have committed. There's this beautiful quote by Ella Wheeler Wilcox. She's a uh, early 20th century poet. This quote is misattributed to Abraham Lincoln uh, frequently. I wanted to read you the entire poem because I thought, as I was finding this, thought it was really, really beautiful. 
for the kind of ethic that this Leviticus passage is speaking about. She writes uh, in 1914, To sin by silence when we should protest makes cowards out of men. The human race has climbed on protest. Had no voice been raised against injustice, ignorance, and lust, the Inquisition yet would serve the law, and guillotines decide our least disputes. The few who dare must speak and speak again to right the wrongs of many. Speech, thank God, no vested power in this great day and land can gag or throttle. Press and voice may cry, loud disapproval of existing ills may criticize oppression and condemn the lawlessness of wealth-protecting laws that let the children and childbearers toil to purchase ease for idle millionaires. Therefore, I do protest against the boast of independence in this mighty land. Call no chain strong which holds one rusted link. Call no land free that holds one fettered slave until the manacled, slim wrists of babes are loosed to toss in childish sport and glee, until the mother bears no burden, save the precious one beneath her heart, until God's soil is rescued from the clutch of greed and given back to labor. Let no man call this land, this the land of freedom. A really beautiful poem, a real beautiful way of saying The way in which we operate in this world today, the way our civilization has advanced, the way in which we have progressed as a country is by the protestations of its citizenry to speak up against the injustices and to remain silent is to commit an egregious sin. So I love this Leviticus passage, again, starting in chapter 5. If you have been called to testify and you do not say anything, there is a sin to be paid for. There is something, a transgression that you need to be redeemed. We are a part of a faith, tradition that is about protesting. And I would encourage us to consider deeply, this isn't just about our spiritual, personal walks. Nor is it just about our comforts and, and fighting against you know, people that believe differently than we do. This faith is also a faith that speaks up and protests against the things that we know are egregious sins, that we know are injustices, that we know are discompassionate towards our fellow man. Now, the rest of this passage goes on to talk about a second piece of this puzzle from there. And there's three words that you need to know from this passage that ends the verses that we read. The first is yada. Everybody say yada. Yada. Yada means to know. If anybody is familiar with the common American colloquial, yada, 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 yada. I know, I know, I know, I know. It comes from this phrase, yada. The second word is asham. Everyone say asham. Asham means to incur guilt. It's to become guilty. It's to recognize that there's guilt there. And this is the phrase that is then, uh, these two words are the first phrases that make up these portions in the teal color here. But then they learn of it and realize their guilt. Learning to know about their sin. And if you know anything about the biblical narrative, you know the word yada means to actually come into deep, intimate awareness of 
to realize their guilt, to become aware that they are guilty, is that word asham, to recognize that, wait a second, not only do I feel something in here, I'm recognizing that whatever it is that I've done or actually neglected to do has now been committed against my fellow man, against my brother, against my sister, against my neighbor, against someone within my community member. And then this last phrase, there's one more phrase that I want to teach you. They must confess in what way they have sinned. Now, the word there to confess is hit vada. Everybody say hit vada. Hit vada. The problem with the English translation is that it's probably one possible way of translating is not you must then confess. It might be actually more in the past tense in the sense that then having confessed. So it would read like this, but then they learn of it, realize their guilt. And then when anybody becomes aware that they are guilty in any of these matters and having confessed in what way they have sinned. In other words, these three words come in a progression to kind of make up the conditions that are automatically given or automatically displayed by you, the offender. You, the offender, come to a realization, that's the yadad, you come to know, that there has been a wrong that has been done, the guilt, the asham. And as a result of those two things, you have therefore come forward to confess what those sins are. This phraseology sets up the next verse, which is, now then bring the sacrifice. You can consider this phraseology kind of like some sort of end-user license agreement. Um, There seems to be some sort of condition that's laid upon this sacrifice. It's an if-then kind of a phraseology. In other words, if all three of these have been done, then you can come forward and provide the sacrifice, the atonement, the redemption, providing through the goat or the sheep or the lamb or whatever it is that you are to bring forward. Question, what is the condition? What is the thing that this biblical passage is encouraging us to consider deeply that precedes a sacrifice to make things right with God? What is that? What is that thing that this passage is encouraging us to do? I'm going to suggest to you one word. Remorse. Remorse. It's a recognition of guilt. Now, we sometimes use this word to describe buyer's remorse. Oh my goodness, I can't believe I bought that. That makes me feel horrible. But this remorse, um, according to Jacob Milgram, a commentator, ancient biblical scholar, would suggest that What this kind of remorse is, the way this phraseology, to know, which is to feel, to have a sense of guilt, and then to move forward and confess, is to say, I actually feel something deep in my soul about the sins that I have committed, whether that's intentional sins or whether that's not having spoken up, as the beginning of the passage states. This phraseology, learning, Awareness, confession, makes up a whole package of awareness, 
and learning that the biblical text is probably suggesting in one word, remorse. Now, why is this important? Please hear this. I think this is absolutely brilliant of this text. It seems as if what we have written down in this passage, in Leviticus, for the first time in history, is that how we feel about our sin is just as important as the actual sin itself. For the first time in history, through this sacrificial system, how I actually personally feel and connected with the wrongdoing and the guilt is now just as important as the actual sin. Your feeling? Yes. How you feel. And I'm going to suggest to you that part of this passage begins to then set the foundation for the, a kind of civilization that undergirds and supports the very best of redemption within the context of our humanity. Now, real quick side note or footnote. Some of us get this sense of feeling bad really mixed up, and Joel Osteen was on the late night show recently, and they had this conversation that I think sums up a little bit of how we sometimes get messed up in how we think about remorse and guilt. So take a look at this. Uh, blessed by another bestseller. This one is called The Power of I Am. It is what follows the word I am, I believe you're inviting into your life. So I think a lot of people don't realize it, but play it in their mind. And even sometimes we say it, you know, you know what, I am slow. I am unlucky. I am, you know, not attractive. And I think we're inviting negative things in. I think we're supposed to say, you know what, I'm blessed. I'm strong. I'm healthy. I'm talented. I think you have to invite the right things into your life. So this is the power of positive vision yeah. for yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I think it is. The vision, and, and I think there's power in our words. I think people don't realize how many times we speak negative things about ourselves. I do that all the time. I'm so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I, I brought you this book just Thank for you. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, I so. hope this is going to fix me up. <laughs> so. I've been a little unusual, and I've got outside of the church world. Maybe I, I talk about life, forgiveness, having good attitudes, reaching your dreams, mm -hmm. not just, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of times religion pushes people down. As a Catholic, have, let me just ask you this. Have you tried the power of crippling guilt? <laughs> <laughs> have you tried that? <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. so funny. Yeah. It's it so works funny. for me, man. It works for me. <laughs> you know, I better do it. I better be better. I know. But, you know, really, Stephen, it's funny because it, it is the reason a lot of people don't go to church. They tell me, Joel, I'm guilty enough. I don't go to church. Right. And so, you know what? Our, our, our message is a little bit different. It's if God is for you, that uh -huh. you can recover from a fall. You can reach your dreams. Yeah. You don't have to live under that, you know, the yeah. guilt, the condemnation. Now, as now, I love that little clip for a couple reasons, and I don't want to make any commentary either on Stephen Colbert's theology or on Joel Osteen's theology just at this particular point. I'm sure we can have plenty of conversations about that at another particular point. But what was so striking to me, at least in that clip, that is relevant to this message is if you notice the conversation about guilt, the sense of American individualism colors how they converse, how they talk, how they have conversations. The power of crippling guilt. Oh, I'm so bad. I'm so horrible. The converse of that is the power of positive thinking. I am good. I am powerful. I am strong. But this 
that kind of conversation seems to be predicated on the idea that guilt and shame are really about who you are and your place with God. And what I'd like to suggest to you is that when it is placed in this context, in the me-centered kind of idea, that's where all the dysfunction breaks down and you only have those two options. You either have the option of I'm so horrible or you have the option of I'm so good or trying to figure out some sort of medium in between the two. As we have talked about before, these Levitical passages, the whole sense of the thrust of the Old Testament passage and the ethics is not about individualism. It's about something much bigger than just me. This kind of remorse, this kind of guilt, this kind of awareness that something has been broken is about the restoration of humanity, of relationship, and of a repairing the, of broken solidarity that we have with our fellow human beings. These passages in Leviticus are very specific to say you have done something against somebody else or somebody else has done something against you or you haven't done something. And that relationship, therefore, has been broken. It's not about condemnation upon you individually. It's about something has been broken between us and that needs to be restored. And it goes back to the idea of responsibility that we have talked about before. If we can be responsible for our own stuff, then there's power that we can do to restore those relationships. This, to me, is summed up in the idea of the prodigal son. And if you hear and if you read that story in, in the Gospel of Luke, the whole essence is not about condemnation, about what you did or did not do. It is about coming home, the restoration of us together. And when, when we come to a realization that guilt has been done or that we should feel guilty, a sin has been done and we feel guilty, and when we come forward and confess that, this Leviticus passage is saying, now, now we're in a place to restore right, to make sacrifice, to atone, to put things back together again. Recently in the news, there's an example that I think is about as poignant as can possibly be. Um, for those of you who have heard the story of this gentleman, his name is Martin Shkreli. He was the CEO of a pharmaceutical company. He has since stepped down. He has made the news in the Twitter sphere and social media for being, quote, the most hated man in America. What is his sin? Well, part of this pharmaceutical company, from what I understand from the news reports, took a $13 drug that was used to save lives, uh, specifically for AIDS patients. He took that drug that cost $13.50 and turned it into a drug that cost $750 per pill, which rendered a whole bunch of people incapable of paying for it. It's a, it just had massive repercussions. And he's been vilified online and now, there's a lot of conversation we can have about that, about speaking up for injustice, but he was recently called before Congress to testify. I want you to watch this clip, and I, I get a sense that most people that have watched this gentleman feel the very same thing that this Leviticus passage is talking explicitly about. Watch his response, 
and feel what these Congress people are attempting to do in their inquiry with him. And then we'll come back. I want to ask you a few questions. What, what, do, you, what do you say to that signal pregnant woman who might have AIDS, no income, and she needs Daraprim in order to survive? Say to her when she has to make that choice, what do you say to her? On the advice of counsel, I invoke my Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination and respectfully decline to answer your question. Do you think you've done anything wrong? On the advice of counsel, I invoke my Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination and respectfully decline to answer your question. I'd like to yield to time to uh, Congressman Gowdy of South Carolina. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Is it pronounced Screlly? Yes, sir. See there, you can answer some questions. That one didn't incriminate you. I, I just want to make sure you understand it, you are welcome to answer questions, and not all of your answers are going to subject you to incrimination. Do you understand that, don't you? I intend to follow the advice of my counsel, not yours. I want to ask you to, no, I want to plead with you to use any remaining influence you have over your former company to press them to lower the price of these drugs. You can look away if you like, but I wish you could see the faces of people, no matter what Ms. Redslath says, who cannot get the drugs that they need. Rightly or wrongly, you've been viewed as a so-called bad boy, a farmer. You have a spotlight, and you have a platform. You could use that attention to come clean, to right your wrongs, and to become one of the most effective patient advocates in the country and one that can make a big difference in so many people's lives. I know you're smiling, but I'm very serious, sir. And I truly believe, I truly believe, are you listening? Yes. Thank you. I truly believe you could become a force of tremendous good. Of course, you can ignore this if you like, but all I ask is that you reflect on it. There's so many people that could use your help. May God bless you. Thank you. Do you feel it? I feel whenever I watch that. Now, I, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not going to get into all of the all the inner workings of what may be going on in his brain. But what I feel and sense from these people, as well as from what I've read and understood in the news, they're begging, do you understand? Do you feel anything? Do you have any sense of shame? Do you have any recognition that some sort of sin has been done, that some sort of hurt, malice has been done to your fellow human beings? And do you have any awareness within yourself to at least confess that you've played a part in this? And whether or not he's legally right or wrong, I feel from these people exactly what this Leviticus passage is saying. To know it, to feel it, and then to confess it. And I, this is what we want. I want to know 
that you feel something about what has been done here, about some sort of sin or transgression that has happened here. I need to know that you feel this. And this is what's so powerful about passages like this. Peter Randall, in his book, The Psychology of Feeling Sorry, writes this. It appears that damaged relationships cannot be repaired, and listen to this, without genuine remorse on the offender's side and the essential response of forgiveness on the victim's. Do you hear those two, the the necessity of both of those? The benevolence of forgiveness is helpful, if not vital, if both victims and offenders are to rediscover, and here's the key phrase, their self-worth. Partners who show high empathy towards offenders benefit by suffering significantly fewer corrosive ruminations and experience greater relationship satisfaction. And what he's basically saying in that passage is that there are two things that are needed. Not only the person who has been offended to extend forgiveness, but the person who was the offender to extend remorse. And if those two things can happen, then, then a relationship can be extended and healed and put back together. Empathy for the victim, remorse of the offender, this is what equals restoration of the community. One final thought that I'd like to share with you and then we'll break. What's really fascinating about this passage is that there seems to be an order that is listed. Conditional statements. If-then statements. If-then. If you do this, then this. And what seems to be happening here is the first thing that's important is making sure that you have made amends with your fellow man. If you have done this sin against somebody else, and then you bring your sacrifice before the Lord. It is almost as if this scriptural passage is saying making amends with people is prioritized before making amends with God. Doesn't this sound familiar to another ancient rabbi that we know and love? Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. And then, come and offer your gift. For those of us who wrestle with our faith and religion and believe that honoring God is of utmost importance, not only does this passage encourage and support that ethic, it challenges the way in which we practice that ethic. To say that if there is a sin that we have done, whether we have spoken or not spoken up for injustice in our world that has caused broken relationships, first, we must first know it, recognize our guilt, and come forward, confess with full remorse, make restoration here, and then we bring our offering and our sacrifice to the Lord. So we can pause and just ask the question, what reconciliations do we need to make? What have we not spoken up for? What intentional sins do we feel that we need to be remorseful for? And I believe this Leviticus passage invites all of us and challenges all of us to consider deeply those relationships and how do we feel. And in some ways is one of the first passages to rise up and speak out against sociopathy, the idea that we just don't feel anything for our fellow human being. And here for the first time, what appears to be the first time in history is that what we feel is deeply connected to what we do. And if we can connect those two, 
that begins the restoration of these relationships. God, help us to engage with these passages more and more, and I do pray that if there are unspoken um, things that we need to speak up for, that we would. And if there are sins that we have done against our fellow human being, that we would begin to make restoration and reconciliation there before we even come to you. Thank you for this passage in the study and for all of my friends, for our gathering and for moving us forward and challenging us by your word. We bless you for it in your name. Amen.